0: Well, we want to invite you now to get your Bibles, and uh, part of gathering as a church is making sure that we're allowing the Word of God to to guide and to direct our hearts, and I would invite you to turn to Acts chapter 11, please, Acts chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at verses 19 through uh, verse 30, Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through verse 30. Let's stand together as we read God's Word, and um, then we will pray. And we'll see what the Lord has for us today. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Lord, help us today as we seek to be fed and ministered to shaped and fashioned by your word. Lord, what we know not would you teach us, what we are not would you make us, and what we have not would you give us. And allow me simply as your mouthpiece, Lord, to be the vehicle through which you are proclaiming your truth to your people, as well as, Lord, those who may be here that do not know you. Would you be glorified, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, As many of you know, I'm a soccer fan, so my beginning illustration is going to be a soccer illustration, but it's probably one that you are aware of, because one of the most infamous goals ever scored uh, in the world um, was scored by a man by the name of Diego Maradona, and it was during the, the 1986 World Cup game between Argentina and England, and what happened was Maradona, he's a little guy and he was weaving through the, the English defense or midfield, I should say. He got to outside the box, passed it off to a fellow player and an English defender got in the way and the ball looped up way high in the air. And basically, uh, Maradona jumped up to get to, to head the ball. The British goalkeeper, Peter Shilton, went up to, to save the ball and Maradona took his hand next to his head and knocked it into the goal. Of course, everyone could see that it was a handball, except for the referee. And the goal stood. And today, that whole goal, that whole event is called the hand of God. But friends, the real hand of God is going to be found in our text today. It's the hand of God who continues the spread of his mission to the end of the earth. And so far in Acts chapters 1 through 11, we've seen two developments take place. First of all, the spreading of gospel mission, Christ's work spreading uh, spreading the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, into Samaria and then the uh, ends of the earth. And then also the unifying of the gospel church. It's not just the, the Jews who are getting saved. Now we're seeing it is the Gentiles who are also coming to faith. And what we found here is there's one church, not two separate churches, not the Jewish Christians and the, and the, and the Gentile Christians, although we refer to them kind of geographically that way. In God's eyes, they are one we've seen that in chapter 10 with Peter's encounter and his vision. And they all have equal status before him. So now in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, we come to a short text, but one that encompasses quite a bit of time, maybe two to three years possibly. And where we read about the spread and the growth of the church to the Gentiles. And it teaches us some basic but fundamental truths about the nature of of church growth. And that's going to be our focus here this morning, the nature of church growth. Or to put it a little differently, it asks the question, how does the growth of the church take place? And so we're going to jump in and we're going to discover three things. Church growth is God's work. Church growth is the scripture's work. And church growth is the church's work. And those would be the headlines or the headings here of our time together. So, first of all, church growth is God's work. God is at work mobilizing, orchestrating, fulfilling his gospel expansion. And I want you to notice four dynamics of, uh, of God's work in church growth. And we begin just by reminding ourselves of his mission Acts 1 8, where he says, You'll be my witnesses. Um, in Judea, in uh, sorry, in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This is what he promised, and now it's being realized. The gospel witness started in Jerusalem. It spread to Judea and Samaria, and it eventually finds itself taking root in the Gentile territories. Christ is committed to the unfolding of his mission with the gospel. Secondly, however, we see his movement. And the focus I want to just mention here is chapters 8 through 11. If you have your Bibles open, and I would encourage you to keep it open uh, as we go through this, but Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, talk about Saul's response um, after Stephen's preaching and how he began this great persecution of those who were believers. And in four, here's what we read. And those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So the persecution brought about a scattering of Jewish Christian believers out of Jerusalem and taking the gospel with them into Judea and Samaria. Now when we look at Acts chapter 11 and verse 19, I want you to notice what it says. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. So what's happening here is we have this Acts 8.4 kind of anchor and we have this Acts eleven nineteen anchor telling us that there's something happening now that we need to pay attention to. Now, between them, we've had three characters that we've been interacting with so far. And those three characters are Philip. If you remember Philip, he first goes up to Samaria preaching the word. He also interacts with the Ethiopian eunuch who takes the, the gospel with him then to uh, portions of Africa. And then we also find him doing ministry on the, the coastline of Judea. So we see right away these these different kind of regions being being reached by Philip. And then, of course, we're introduced to Saul again. And we find out that he's converted on the road to Damascus. And so he goes to Damascus. He's taught in Damascus. Potentially, we find that he goes to Arabia, comes back to Damascus. So the gospel is present now in Damascus also. And then... In chapters 10 through 11, we have Peter. Peter goes up to Lydda, then Joppa, and then ultimately to Caesarea, where he's in Cornelius' home, and he's preaching the gospel there. And this is where the Gentile believers uh, really are beginning uh, this, this whole gospel encounter. So it's a wonderful story that's happening. But what's what, what Luke is saying is right now here in verse 11, meanwhile, <laughs> while all this has been happening... Some other things have been happening too. And what he's doing is he's reorienting us back to the scatterings brought about by the persecution after Stephen stoning. And we see that while Philip has been ministering and while Paul is being converted in Damascus and while Peter has been sharing the gospel in Caesarea, the scattering continues in places as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. It's as if Luke has a camera and he's been focusing in on Jerusalem and, and that region of Judea and Samaria. And now he's lifting it up and he's moving it into some new locations. All this activity has been taking place. And he wants us to see how the growth of the church is expanding. So that's the mission. Then I want you to notice his map, because he's anchoring us here with these, these places, Right? The first one is Phoenicia. Phoenicia basically is modern-day Lebanon. I have a pastor friend who is from Lebanon. He speaks Arabic, and you dare not call him an Arab. You say, I'm not an Arab. I'm a Phoenician. All right? I mean, he's very, very, you have to know him, Edgar Trebose. He's very, very passionate in how he speaks. I'm a Phoenician. All right. Well, that's where they're from. Um, this is where the, the cities of Tyre and Sidon once were. Then there's Cyprus, which is modern-day Cyprus. I hope you're with me there so far, right? It's, modern, it's that island west of uh, Lebanon there. And there, there was a home of Barnabas as well uh, a lar- as a, a home of a large Jewish colony. Then we, we kind of jump a little ahead in the story here. There's Cyrene. And Cyrene on the map is off of the map that you have up there, but it's it's basically the capital of a of a Roman province called Sarenica. Um, it's modern-day Libya. Now, it was a, an intellectual city. It was a city that was well-known for its its medicine, its advancements in medicine. We might know some characters, Simon the Cyrene, Alexander, and Rufus, all of them from this particular city. Now, all of these regions and cities were heavenly, heavily Hellenistic um, in character, but also had a significant Jewish presence. And our text is pushing us now toward another city, and it's the city of Antioch. Because under the providence of God, Antioch will now be the the mission uh, uh, Gentile focus. It will be the epicenter from which ministry, Gentile ministry, will take place. So the gospel movement has gained ground into Gentile territories, and Antioch now will be the hub of this missionary work all across the Mediterranean. Now, Antioch is uh, in the southeastern portion of Turkey. It was the third largest city of that time, Rome being number one, Alexandria being number two. And in Antioch, they had about 500,000 or so people that lived there, of which about 25,000 were Jews. Now, one of the things to, to note there about, uh, about Antioch is, of course, being a Hellenist culture, there was a lot of pagan worship that was going on there. And that pagan worship happened to be worship of Artemis and Apollo and Astarte. It was a quagmire of moral laxity, cultural prostitution, immorality. It was also a multicultural city. It was multi-ethnic, which included Greeks, Syrians, Phoenicians, Jews, Arabs, Persians, Egyptians, Indians, Chinese. And as I reflected on it, I thought, it's, it's amazing that 2,000 years ago in Antioch, I could order chicken marsala and pork fried rice with noodles. But this is the kind of city it was. It was multicultural. It was a cosmopolitan city full of religion and gods where Judaism functioned as an exception to the lifestyle of the people. And friends, from a human perspective, because of the city's paganism, it doesn't seem to be the best location for the church to make its space for missionary endeavor. Yet this is the place that God chooses to raise up one of the strongest churches in the early Christian era. Antioch, as, as we'll see, will be a solid training and sending church, a church that would do, we would do well to model after and learn from, a church that was committed to the gospel the gospel witness, and the gospel growth. So that's that's the map. There's a lot to take in there, isn't there? But this is the spread. This is how God is working. But finally, I want you to notice one of the other reasons why this this is God's work is because of his muscle. And what I'm saying by that word muscle is is I want want to pay attention to the, the, the demonstration in our text of God's power to accomplish his Mission. You probably saw this already in the title of the sermon as well as in the text. All this is happening because of the hand of the Lord. This is an expression that refers to God's sovereign providence and power. He is behind the gospel movement spread and conversions. It is an expression found in the Old Testament that describes God's providential power to to carry out something through a chosen vessel. And it is used to describe God's active presence with Judah, with Ezra, with Nehemiah, with John the Baptist, just to name a few. So this is his muscle. The hand of God is at work. Secondly, the grace of God at work. Here we have this expression, as as Barnabas comes into Antioch, he's overwhelmed by the impact of the grace of God. People who are being converted out of paganism. It wasn't just that Jews were being converted. If you remember, some men from Cyrene and and, and, and were able to go in there, and they targeted these particular people that were Hellenists. How How can God be saving people from these pagan worshipers? It's an amazing thing, the power of the grace of God. Now, when the Bible says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, or for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all, don't think of it as a mushy, gushy, warm and fuzzy kind of love. So many people use grace kind of in that way, don't they? But I want you to think of grace as a divine kindness and power that pursues people, convicts them of their sin, changes their hearts, and orients them to Christ. God's grace is God's joyful power upon those whom he is drawing to himself. So don't neglect the power of God's grace. It penetrates the darkest hearts. It brings life to the dead heart. It gives purpose and joy to the discouraged heart. It clarifies the mind of a doubting heart. When you pray for God's grace, you're praying for God's divine power to be unleashed. When you're receiving God's grace, you will forever be changed. And when you exercise grace to those who don't deserve it, you're becoming more and more like Christ. See, grace is not warm and fuzzy. Grace is power. But it's divine, kind Loving power. So that's the grace of God at work. The hand of God at work. And now, the kingdom of God at work. And I just want to highlight these these statements of a great many people. Verse 21. And these are kind of results of, of gospel ministry. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. In verse 24, a great many people were added to the Lord. And then in verse 26, as the church is being built up, a great many people were taught in the Lord. You see, what Luke wants us to see first, friends, is that the church growth is first and foremost God's work. Now, we don't necessarily see him, but we see his effects. We see his influence. We see his, his opening of doors. He is behind his work. He's orchestrating it. He's in the middle of it. He's accomplishing it. He's always the unseen sovereign backdrop to all church growth he moves people from countries and cities and regions uh, through persecution in order to accomplish his mission of church growth In, in a more modern kind of way he is the divine gps that is driving the google map of gospel growth See, he's behind it it's the lord's work it's his work he is the one that accomplishes it. He's the one that makes it happen. This is how church growth takes place. We don't say, God, I know what you say, but we're going to do it our way. No, that's you're going to have growth, but it ain't going to be church growth. right? God is the one who's behind it. So we go from, it's God's work. Secondly, in this passage, church growth is the scripture's work. So with this backdrop of the hand of God, this text is drawing our attention to the essential seed of church growth. That's the seed of his word. And Luke describes three different phases of word ministry that produces or are essential to church growth. The first one is found in verses 19 through 21. And I want you to notice Uh, Down in verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's this word preaching, uh, whereby the church is established. Now, preaching in the Bible is a number of different words that are translated preaching. But usually when we think about preaching, we're thinking about the word keruso which is more a demonstration of what I'm doing right now, a herald, someone who's proclaiming. This word here, translated preaching, actually comes from euangelio, which means to be an evangelist. And so what's happening here is that people, these men, are moving in different territories, and they are speaking the good news. And this, this, this uh, evangelism word is, is really not thinking so much about large crowds. It includes that, but it's, it's really talking about smaller groups or, or one-on-one encounters. And it's often used to describe the testifying of, of, of gospel, of the gospel in those kind of smaller senses. And friends, that clearly fits the context here because it is the ordinary believers driven out of Jerusalem that are doing the word ministry. Declaring the truth of the gospel. Now, what is the truth of the gospel that they're declaring? Well, using Peter's kind of explanation from chapter 10, let's just divide it into three parts. I'll be really brief here. The the, the message of the gospel is this Jesus is Lord. And again, you've got to think about a Hellenistic culture where it was, what? Caesar is Lord. They're saying, no, Jesus is Lord. But then there's the facts of the gospel. That he was arrested as an innocent man, put on trial for crimes he did not commit. He was crucified, he was buried, and he rose again, and he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. Those are the facts of the gospel. And then there's this meaning of the gospel that Peter talks about. That Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead, but the wonderful truth is the fact that that judge also grants forgiveness for those who believe. This is kind of like the nutshell of what the gospel's all about. So friends, we must not embrace this often uh, accepted but faulty idea that can, it can creep into the church that basically says this, it is the pastors and elders who are supposed to be the evangelists, and we the church are here to support them, to help them. We'll throw them money, we'll give them this and that the other, but they're the ones that are actually going to go out and speak the word of the gospel to people. I mean, we pay them to do that. Friends, we as pastors and elders, we have a responsibility to evangelize, but it's all of our responsibility. It's the church's responsibility to do those things. So let's not get caught up in that, but let's remind ourselves that all of us can be evangelists in that sense. God's calling us to do that. Now notice, they went first to the Jews, the people that they were naturally affiliated, presumably in the synagogues, which seemed to be the pattern. This was a natural strategy to go to their own and explain Christ from the scriptures. But then we read that some from Cyprus and Cyrene turned their attention toward the Hellenists. And of course, that word Hellenist means Greek, which really is talking then about the non-Jews, the Gentiles, right? So we have Jewish Christians now, Evangelizing Gentile pagans. Now, just again, put that in your thinking. That may not seem too surprising to us as we're going through it here, but in this context, this is huge. And the fruit of all of this we find in verse 21 And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Now, friends, you can do evangelism. You have the gospel. You are witnesses. It's not about your gifts. It's not about your wisdom, although we ought to all be growing to make sure we have a better grasp and I would say a better way to explain the gospel or to interact with people with the gospel. But it is about the power of the gospel at work through weak vessels. We're all weak vessels, friends. All of us. Just look around. You're looking at weak vessels. Standing on this platform doesn't make someone an unweak vessel. Still weak vessels. And it's not my power that gets people saved. It's not some big preacher's power that gets people saved. It's the Holy Spirit working through his word proclaimed. That is the power to penetrate the hearts of people who are receiving that gospel message. So wherever you go, at school, at work, the hospital, on BART, at the dentist, think to yourself, as you're saying, God will get me through this pain, I'm going to give glory to you, I'm going to root my hope in you, and I'm going to point to you. So so what I'm encouraging you to do is just as you live your life, just Right, rightly and properly and kind of logically drop gospel bombs. What I mean by that is when people are like, you know, so how, how are you doing? Today? I'm doing great. Are you worried about the surgery that's coming up? You know what I am, but I have my faith in Lord Jesus Christ that he's going to carry me through. It's a gospel bomb. Now, the things those are things that you have just casually with people. And what you do is you say, well, that's, that's, if that's the, the extent of my, my evangelism, that's not sufficient. That gospel bomb then provides opportunities for doors to be opened and to walk through and to be able to talk more deeply about the gospel with that individual. But, but naturally, just live your life just dropping gospel bombs wherever you go. And don't be cheesy about it, but just be honest and, and realistic about it. You are a Christian after all. That's what God is calling you to. My friends, no matter how much theology you know, As I said, we're all still weak Christians. The Apostle Paul told the Roman church, this is Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then a little later in 2 Timothy, he's encouraging Timothy in his, in his mission endeavor as a pastor, and he's, he says, and I'm kind of summarizing chunks of 2 Timothy here, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord, in other words, the gospel, but guard it, follow it, entrust it, preach it. So friends, it is through evangelism that the church is established. That's point A. Now we're at point B. Secondly, there's this word exhortation. What happens is when the Jerusalem church hears about what's happening in Antioch, they need to send a represent, representative to find out what's going on. And they send Barnabas. I'm so glad it's Barnabas. Such a good guy, right? I mean, we, we've seen already how wonderful he is. And he goes, and as he arrives, he is overwhelmed. He's overjoyed with what he sees is happening because of the grace of God. And we're told there that he exhorts the people. He exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. This word exhort in this context is to encourage with and from the word of God. And that is what Barnabas does naturally. He encourages them to do two things, right? Let's divide them up. We'll take the latter end first. First of all, to be devoted or resolved with steadfast purpose. You are now a child of God. There's going to be suffering. Stay in there. Hang in there. Look look at where you need to go. Follow the Lord. Keep plugging away. Secondly, to remain faithful to the Lord. Don't be drawn away and enticed by the things that are here. Remain faithful. So this word exhort has the idea of moving people's hearts towards action. It has the idea of motivating them toward faith and good works. It has the idea of of encouraging them to not give up or to give in when opposition or hardship is facing them, but to press on, to endure, and to continue their devotion in the gospel. And once again, this section of word ministry ends with a declaration of God's work being accomplished, verse 24, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Now, sometimes, friends, we need a good, loving kick in the pants to get our focus back to where it needs to be. There have been times in my pastoral ministry or just in my life where there have been some dark seasons where I'm struggling, I'm discouraged, I'm having a hard time, and God has used pastor friends or godly friends to come along and to say some things to me that will lift my spirits, to encourage me. And friends, this is also what we are able to do right now with our Ukrainian friends who are suffering so much. I don't know about you, but you know, on Facebook or or Messenger or different ways, I'm, I'm sending messages to encourage them, letting them know that we're praying for them, letting them know that they're not forgotten, letting them know to, to stick with the, the job of helping people, but being the light of the gospel in the midst of that particular darkness. And this is why we're committed to biblical counseling here at Gateway. Why? Because we want to help people. We want to encourage them not to give up, not to give in, but to press on with a, with a biblical mindset with what is before them. So friends, it is through exhortation that the church of God is encouraged. Now, we come to the third one. And that is the word teaching. This is how the church is equipped. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year they met of the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the first, uh, the disciples were first called Christians. So here's Barnabas, and he goes now and he finds uh, Saul, uh, who we know as Paul, and he convinces him to come back to Antioch to join him in a ministry endeavor there, where together they will meet with the church and teach a great many people, all right? The word used here for teach is the word didasco, which has the the idea of instruction, a a passing on of knowledge, sometimes translated precepts, instruction, or doctrine. So what we have taking place here is a commitment to theological growth, a commitment to discipleship in their walk with the Lord. This is the ministry of the word through teaching, the deliberate and purposeful Growth in the study of God's word over time. Now, we might say, um, what, what might we say they have been teaching? Let's just kind of reflect a little bit on that. I jotted a few things down here. I'm sure you could add a few. But I'm sure they were teaching them about the structure of the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament scriptures, how they work together. Various themes or motifs in the scriptures, lamb, sacrifice, covenants, redemption, sin, forgiveness, reconciliation, judgment, things like that. The character of God, who he is, what he's like, the Trinity, the fact that God is sovereign, he's omniscient. Christ in the scriptures. The nature of the church that flows out of the scriptures. The role of family, all, all these things. These are all foundational things. Why? Because the goal here is to equip this church. It's to build this church up. And what we see then is that there are three separate aspects of word ministry, which will become, friends, the essential ingredients in faithful expositional preaching. So I, as a pastor, want to make sure that in my sermons, these things are present. First of all, evangelism. There's always a need to point to Christ and the gospel from the text that's being studied. If we're not pointing to Christ, we're not being faithful in that preaching moment. Secondly, exhortation. There must always be a call to keep growing and to live our lives for the Lord, no matter the circumstances. God is saying, you can face this trial. You can uh, endure this suffering. You can talk to that person. You have the ability. Keep on living for the Lord. It's all exhortation. And then there's edification. There must always be the teaching of God's word what God is saying, what it means, how it ties together, what he expects of us. And friends, you see, as church as church growth is happening, these three dynamics of word ministry are all at work, aren't they? There's the evangelism, there's this edification, there's this equipping. And, to, and, and friends, we, we must also say this is essential for a healthy church because a healthy church needs evangelists. Those who love to meet with people, talk with them about Christ and the gospel, and lead them to the Lord. A healthy church needs encouragers who, who write letters, send cards, post good gospel memes, right? compose emails encouraging people to press on for the Lord. They are often the counselors among us who say you can do it. You can be that husband or wife God is calling you to be. You can can face that trial, that sickness, that setback, because God understands and he is ultimately in control. You don't have to listen to that kind of put down. You can press on in Christ. This is where uh, these, these wonderful encouragers come along and they minister and we also need equippers, those who can teach and explain and connect the dots of God's revealed word. Now friends, this is, this is what's happening here. Luke is saying, as he's unfolding the spread of, uh, of the gospel and the, the growth of the church, he's saying, first of all, church growth is God's work, but it's also scripture's work. God breathed out his word and it is at work in growing the church. And the result of this word ministry and God's hand on these people is that these people now were seen differently by the community that they were in. They were no longer seen as Jews, but they were seen as a new group of people called Christians, followers of Christ, probably a term of derision but there was a uniqueness to what they believed and how they lived, even as compared to the Jews. So now those who were called once called the way are identified as the Christians. God's work, Scripture's work. Now we move to the fact that church growth is the church's work. Notice verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, And as the church grows, friends, and matures, prophets come and go. But this time a prophet by the name of Agabus comes and he stands up to speak. We need to say just a couple of things about uh, a prophet. What is a prophet in particular? What is a prophet? How is he functioning in the New Testament? Well, first of all, a prophet is one who speaks the word of God for God, right? We, We could say he is a prophet who speaks on God's behalf, or we could say it a little differently. You could describe him as God's representative or ambassador by communicating God's word to his people. Now, we're comfortable with seeing prophets in the Old Testament. We've seen many of them. I mean, just rattle off a few. Moses, Abraham, Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Amos, Zechariah, Malachi. There's more that we could list there. We're comfortable with prophets in the Old Testament. But there's also prophets in The New Testament, in particular as the Church of God is established. Of course, we have John the Baptist, I would say the the last Old Testament prophet, but even as the church is now being established, there is a prophetical ministry. A, A New Testament prophet existed because the New Testament scriptures did not. Okay? What, what happens is the apostles are speaking and God ultimately, as we, we see in our New Testament, is inspiring His Word to be included in what we call the Bible. But that wasn't formed yet. There was a function in the, in the New Testament early church here until the apostles died out where there were prophets who would speak. But a New Testament prophet existed because the New Testament scriptures did not. And, and they had a ministry of both forthtelling and foretelling. You've probably heard this before, but it's worth just defining it quickly. Forthtelling is proclaiming God's word to the audience before you. This is what God is wanting to say to you. Foretelling is usually what we think about when we think about prophecy. You know, a prophet is saying something ahead of time that is going to happen in the future, right? Um, and what we have here, as we see in the text... Is Agabus is foretelling. He sang something about the future that it was revealed to him by God. But as I mentioned, the latter prophetic office, this foretelling, died out with the apostles and with the formation of the New Testament scriptures. And the remaining pastor teacher is a prophetic office that requires me now as a pastor to foretell what God has already revealed. Okay, So the proclamation of what God has already said in his word is what then as a pastor I am now forth telling to you. That's the prophetical function. So with all that in mind, what's happening here? Well, first of all, there's a crisis that is revealed. We're told that Agabus stood up to speak and he foretold that there would be a great famine all over the world. Now, historical evidence outside of the Bible confirms that a major famine hit the region of Judea in A.D. 45 to 46, during the reign of Claudius. Josephus mentions it, uh, Tacitus mentions it, uh, Suetonius mentions it. So there's, there's clear evidence in historical documents that what's being talked about is true, is real. And on some level, one might read the book of Acts and, and really think some things, I think would be natural, how in the world did this gospel mission ever take place? I mean, with all the opposition, the persecution, and now a worldwide famine, how is God's mission going to go on? Well, remember, there's this hand of the Lord thing that's going on. God accomplishes his purpose in spite of what's happening with men on earth. And friends, let's just put a marker there right now and say, even what's happening in our world today, that seems so tragic and so horrible, and it is, is all under the care of a sovereign God who is at work accomplishing his purposes. As man mobilizes to build and to raise up his kingdom, God says, aha, if you want to do that, that's fine. But guess what? I'm actually mobilizing and orchestrating my kingdom. I'm accomplishing my purposes, even through man's evil behavior, and it's really important that we grasp that. So here we have this crisis that is revealed, but I want you to notice that the crisis is relieved. We see a great show of support from the churches there. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So notice how the church responds here to this particular crisis. They determine to give and send relief. They're like, yes, this is a legitimate need, a trial, a difficulty. It happens to be famine. It could be a number of different things, but right now it happens to be a famine. And then they give according to their ability. They leave it up to you, to the individual, to decide what they're going to give for this particular special love offering, right? Right? And they help the body of Christ in different parts of the world, in this case, those who are in Judea. Now, friends, this is very, very much like the generosity that we saw earlier in Acts chapter 4 in the church in Jerusalem. Let me read that, Acts chapter 4, verses 34 to 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. And friends, such generosity is one of the marks of the true church. You see it in Jerusalem. We're seeing it now in Antioch. These two epicenters, these two places where God is building up his church. And friends, this is one of why one of our commitments uh, when we come to missions is that we don't just send money to an individual that we really don't know. We want to establish ministry partners around the world. We want to know that if we're, if we're sending money or if we're going to help, that we're going to actually help with a particular need. We want to have mutual fellowship and edification. And right now my heart is heavy because Roman and Vova are pastors that we, that we help and support in, in, in Ukraine I mean, their churches are just, you know, in a sense, disseminating because people are leaving and things are happening, right? We know all that. And yet our hearts are heavier. Why? Because it's not just a person we're sending money to. These are people that we've built relationships with. I mean, I consider these people arms of our church. As pastors, if I were sick or something happened and they happened to be here, they would jump right in and they would serve you faithfully. Why? Because we're co-laborers together. They're not just names and people that we have to say, well, we support all these people in all these different places. Do you know them? No, but that's okay. We're sending them money. No, we want to build relationships, deep relationships, so that when we hear about a crisis, we're able to help. And in Bolivia, we've helped buy a vehicle so Matias can go up into the mountains, into the villages that are, you know, way off the beaten path and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the people there. We've helped them build. The, the cabins at the campsite. Why? Because they're bringing particular children to have camp at the camps. We're trying to help and assist. We're trying to be there, hands-on, doing work. Why? Not just to do the work, but also to get to know the people. Right? This is where relationships are necessary. And we see then a need, and we're, we're far more ready to respond. And it's uncanny that we're reading in this text here, uh, it parallels what, what God has been doing through us here at Gateway. We established over 10 years ago, God connected us with the church in Ukraine. We sought to invest in them by helping them equip their pastors in word ministry to be careful, to handle the word of God carefully. And now that they're in crisis, our natural relationship motivates us to pray as well as to give in whatever way we can. We're still trying to discover the best ways to do that. So let's just summarize what we've learned so far. We have a sovereign and omnipotent God, whose hand is at work, whose gospel—sorry, uh, whose grace—is at work, radically changing people. Secondly, we have a relevant and life-changing word, and it's fleshed out in different ways and impacts the church as well as society. We are called to be united and compassionate and generous as a church, as we see and we hear about needs of our partners in ministry. It's a wonderful kind of snapshot of what a church should be like. And let's just think now as we bring our thoughts to a close. This passage gives us a revealing definition of a growing church, doesn't it? Let me just take the nuggets that we've looked at so far. The people of God committed to faithfully proclaiming the word of God, mobilized and emboldened by the mighty and powerful hand of God. I mean, what a wonderful mission statement that is for us. Now we have our own mission statement, but I'm saying this is is consistent. God is calling his people. To take the word of God, trusting that God is already at work when they open up their mouths, when they proclaim the truth of God, because he is sovereign. He's the backdrop. He is the one that's behind it all. This is church growth, friends. Alexander the Great once learned that his army was Another, in his army was another soldier whose name was also Alexander, but was also a notorious coward. And so Alexander the Great, who conquered the world when he was just 21, called the soldier before him and said, Is your name Alexander, and are you named for me? And the trembling coward said, Yes, sir, my name is Alexander, and I was named for you. And the great general said, then either be brave or change your name. Now, friends, thankfully, Jesus doesn't say that to us. But we are Christians. And we are to take on ourselves the mantle of what that that word, that description means. We're called to live boldly. And to to live out our calling and our mission in faithful obedience. To be his people with his word, trusting in his mighty, powerful hand. Friends, that's what Luke is telling us to do here. That's what Luke is calling us to. We lean on God's work. We do our best with Scripture's work. We certainly have responsibility as the church to do our work, and we do that for his glory. Lord, help us today. Help us as we, even in the midst of the things that are bouncing around in our world, Lord, that we're grieving over, that we're struggling with, that we're praying for, not to neglect the need for us to continually be strengthened and motivated and filled, Lord, with your truth. And this, Lord, this morning, Lord, I, I know that we need to be reminded that you are the consistent, sovereign backdrop of everything that is going on. We need that anchor, Lord. That you are seated on your throne in heaven. You have not somehow stumbled off of it. And although there's chaos here on the earth, Lord, you are completely stable in heaven, knowing what you're doing. Lord, we need to be reminded of of who you are and what you are doing, Lord, in in mobilizing and orchestrating, um, Lord, the the, the furtherance of your mission and your kingdom. And Lord, we also need to be, be reminded, Lord, of just the wonderful beauty that we have, Lord, and that is your word. Lord, we can just kind of set the Bible aside and Think that we just need to pick it up on Sunday. Lord, help us not to, 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 to think those ways. Lord, help us to be mindful, to keep growing and to seeing, Lord, that what you've given us is not just a, a record, Lord, but it is life. It's what we need. It's what, Lord, you work through. And then, Lord, as your people, as your church gather together, may we unite by thinking about how we can help and care, not just for our own people. That's important, Lord. We know that. That's our responsibility. But Lord, as you have in your own divine way connected us to various places around the world, Lord, may we do our part. When we hear a need, we hear a crisis, Lord, to to see what we can do, Lord, to help those people in need. Lord, this is what it means to be a church. This is what gospel growth looks like. Lord, help us as a church to be faithful to you in it. We ask in your precious holy name, amen.